Hello and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. I'm Matthew Howes-Barbie and today we have a really exciting episode. We're digging into the wonderful world of restaking. We've got Mike, the CEO over at Etherfi, the protocol that has got over $770 million worth of ETH already locked up inside its protocol um, that they are natively restaking through Eigenlayer. So you may have heard a little bit about Eigenlayer, maybe a little bit about the whole restaking hype, uh, liquid restaking tokens and everything surrounding it. Well, we decided we would do a bit of a deep dive into this whole space and what better person than Mike to chat us through all of this. They are leading the way really in the restaking space. They have by far and away the most uh, restaked ETH um, since kind of this, I guess, like really started to kind of really come to a, be a popular narrative since the end of last year. And the the many different restaking protocols that have appeared since with the varying like points programs, which, you know, has created a bit of a feeding frenzy uh, so far. So we talk a bit about, you know, what Etherfy is. Uh, we dig into restaking as a whole, the problem it's solving, how AVSs will work. And we get into a tiny bit of the, the technical pieces here, but we don't go too deep. But I think you'll come away from this episode having a pretty good understanding of the actual problem that restaking is solving at the kind of protocol level all the way through to what the value is for users, for stakers. Uh, and, and and really, you know, this is a, a pivotal moment in the timeline of Ethereum. And Mike explains it as kind of rewriting or adding some additional rules of physics to, to the world of Ethereum. And, you know, restaking in itself is inevitable. And make no mistake, this is not the yield farming Ponzi world of the DeFi summer period that we had. This is really very much different and is a huge value add for the entire Ethereum ecosystem and beyond. So without further ado, let's dig straight into the interview with Mike now. Mike, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, we're, we're really excited with all of the hype that's happening right now around Eigenlayer, restaking, and what seems to be now the, the leader of the pack, so to speak, from by all means nearly every metric there is, Etherfy. Uh, so why don't, we, why don't we start the conversation with just Maybe you give us a high-level explainer of what Etherfy is, kind of the mission you're on, and and a bit about the journey so far. For sure, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me here. You know, I always love to chat about crypto and Etherfy specifically. Um, so the the basic idea of Etherfy is it is a next generation uh, liquid staking protocol, uh, and the two things that make it uh, unique is that it is much more strongly non-custodial, uh, where stakers hold their uh, their keys than other protocols. Um, and the second thing is uh, it is uh, natively restaked. So it's the it was the first natively restaked uh, uh, staking token. 
Um, and it is, you know, it's very widely integrated in DeFi on, on protocols like uh, Gravitas, Silo, Morpho, you know, Curve, Balancer, Maverick, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so it's just very useful. It's super easy and gives users exposure to the uh, uh, restaking ecosystem, which has been receiving an incredible, wild amount of uh, hype over the last uh, little while. That's right. And maybe for just everyone listening, you could give a, a very brief explainer on, you know, when you mentioned that you were the first to, or, or at least one of the first to to natively restake, kind of what that mm-hmm. means and how that's different from maybe like uh, using like a liquid staking uh, token. Yeah. Is it, is it worth actually doing like a two second thing on uh, what restaking is as well? Yeah, that let's let's do it. Okay. All right. So I'll start with the, why don't I'll actually start with staking and then we'll go to restaking and then we'll go to native restaking. It's uh, crypto is just, you know, <laughs> the tower of Babel of uh, <laughs> abstractions. Um, so, uh, okay. So, you know, staking on Ethereum is um, conceptually pretty straightforward. You deposit 32 ETH in a special contract called the Beacon Chain Deposit Contract. Uh, and that gives you the right to run an Ethereum validator, which is basically a server that processes transactions on the Ethereum uh, blockchain. Um, in exchange for doing that, which today is, I think, around $70,000 worth of ETH. So you lock up this $70,000 worth of ETH. Uh, in exchange for doing that, you get to run this uh, validator and earn fees. So you get fees uh, that are just programmatic as, as part of uh, validator duties, but also a share of transaction uh, uh, fees uh, that users pay. So it is this sort of um, really kind of beautiful self-regulating system that uh, uh, creates a mechanism whereby, you know, the people running the network are incentivized to make sure it's healthy. Now, the drawback, I guess, if you if you could call it that, of staking is, you know, you lock up 32 ETH. That's $70,000, a lot of dollars. Um, So what one might want to do is to lock up that ETH and get a receipt for it, um, or uh, more like a deposit certificate that you can then use in uh, other DeFi protocols. Um, So you lock up this 32 ETH, you get your receipt token, and then you can go and borrow against it. You can trade it. You can do all kinds of great things that you'd want to do um in uh, in DeFi so that it you know you um ultimately it allows you to make use of those uh, those assets and play further out on the risk curve than just sort of a, a risk free rate so that's that's staking and that's liquid staking liquid staking is that receipt token so there are you know the the OG staking protocols liquid staking protocols are Lido and Rocket Pool where you just deposited your ETH they accumulated in a pool spun up validators and then gave users these receipt tokens that are very widely traded on uh, Ethereum. You know, Lido's got over $20 billion of ETH in it. Um, uh, you know, very large. It's the largest DeFi category. So restaking is taking it up a notch. Uh, basically, what if instead of just securing Ethereum and uh, running a, a validator, a validating service on, on Ethereum, you could use that same deposit, that same $70,000 deposit, to run uh, validators or to validate other services, um, uh, maybe other blockchains, maybe Oracle networks, maybe you know data availability layers, or any number of uh, uh, different uh, different services. Um, and in exchange, now you're not just earning fees from Ethereum, but you're earning fees from these other services that you are uh, validating. And that is restaking. So it becomes this um, 
you can think of it in a way as rehypothecation. Um, so it becomes this, this way of rehypothecating your Ethereum potentially to an arbitrary, you know, nth degree. You can potentially be validating, you know, a hundred different services and subject to the, the slashing, you know, the risk rules associated with those, uh, those services. And in exchange, you're, you're taking on, you know, much more risk, but you're also earning uh, much more reward. That's the, that's the basic idea of uh, restaking. Everyone's go- gone out of their mind with excitement about this, uh, <laughs> this concept. Uh, and EtherFi, you know, my, my company, uh, was the first liquid restaking uh, protocol. Um, uh, and so that's now that has, now that's a multi-billion dollar category in, uh, in DeFi. That is a fantastic explainer. And I completely agree. People are absolutely losing their mind. And, you know, talking about EtherFi being a leader, I mean, I'm just looking right now, is around about a kind of current ETH dollar value, $787 million worth of uh, value staked. Wow, is it that high? Uh, EtherFi. Yeah, <laughs> 331,000 ETH. Last Congrats. time I checked... Uh... <laughs> it was like 700 and now yeah it's i mean it's going up very very fast yeah well and i i think you know i i remember when we did an episode about this uh, a couple of years ago around when you know liquid staking tokens and you mentioned lido and uh, rocket pool uh, came on the scene that they serve many purposes right but i think one of the things that for a lot of the average users found very useful was you know, running a validator is, as you mentioned, uh, a big capital outlay, but it's also, mm-hmm. you know, can be, if, if you're not particularly technically minded, um, you combine the potential risk of, you know, losing some of or all of that ETH uh, with maybe you're not that confident in actually running the hardware of a validator. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a daunting yeah, task. Exactly. And, yeah. And, you know, like Lido and co, they came on the scene. They were like, hey, don't worry, click the button, deposit the ETH, and we will not, like, you, you don't need to worry about this. And it feels like that's where this this new wave has come in with Eigenlayer, mm-hmm. which feels, for the average user, even an, another level of technical kind of understanding required to, to grasp mm-hmm. this. And the likes of Etherfy and others in the space are, again, simplifying that for the, the end user. And I and I and I wanted to understand because when we look at the current space of these liquid restaking uh, protocols, if if we like, um, you made a very conscious decision where you would take in uh, ETH, you convert that into your um, liquid restaking token. I think maybe is the correct mm-hmm. term in E ETH, and yep. you would natively restake in mm-hmm. eigenlayer running validate as i assume yourself in through through eigenlayer with the eth that you you take in from from users mm-hmm. other protocols in this in this restaking space have taken a slightly different approach to to this mm-hmm. and i wanted to just like understand like why you cho- chose that route over others so there there's a uh, uh what sounds like a subtle difference between different ways of restaking on eigenlayer, but it's actually a very important difference. Um, the two ways of restaking on eigenlayer are native restaking and non-native restaking. The difference between those, if you don't know what restaking is, or you're not you know, very versed in this universe, this, this probably will sound so 
obscure and pedantic, but uh, it's it's important, believe believe it or not. Um, uh, native restaking is when you spin up your validator. If you recall, I said you you have you deposit 32 ETH in this magical beacon chain deposit contract. And in exchange, you register this, this validator. Well, when you do that, you also specify what, what are called your withdrawal credentials, the withdrawal address that the ETH will come back to when you want to unstake it. So let's say you, you staked a bunch of ETH, you, you're running a validator, and then you're kind of, okay, I'm done. I've run the validator. I'm good. Um, uh, and you want to get your ETH back, you unstake it and it will come back to these withdrawal credentials that you specify when you first, uh, you know, staked uh, your ETH. Mm-hmm. Well, with native restaking, the way this, like, uh, the way you you open up the Ethereum trust layer and create the, what's called this programmable slashing logic uh, to allow you to validate other services is by setting the withdrawal credentials on your validators to a special series of smart contracts by you know created by Eigenlayer. So you set them to these restaking contracts that have this programmable slashing logic uh, implemented uh, in them. Uh, that's native restaking, and the the benefit of this is it is um, there's a security guarantee that you've provided this ETH. It lives in the Beacon Chain contract. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's tied to a specific validator that you're running. And that validator either directly runs the restaking service, like maybe it runs another blockchain client or whatever else, um, or that validator delegates that operation to some someone else. But there's like a direct tie-in between you know, the, the whoever staked the ETH to the validator to the, the restaked services. And you know, if you kind of look at the uh, the original restaking paper, this is the, the this was the idea. This is how it was meant to work. So uh, another way to do it, to I guess one could say simplify the, the process is instead of having to spin up a validator and point these withdrawal credentials and have all this like logic about managing you know fees and, and flashing and all, all that, um, you can just basically take a pooled approach and simply deposit a whole bunch of tokens into a, a liquidity pool. Uh, and it could be any any number of tokens. You could say it could be light as SDE. I mean, it, in theory, it could be USBC. It could be any tokens yeah. into this pool. Um, and then you create a bunch of slashing logic around that pool um, and delegate the right to slash that uh, that pool to uh, a bunch of node operators um, that run these restaking services. Um, now, uh, again, it sounds similar, I suppose, in that, like, look, in the end, you have a server, it's running a bunch of clients, it's validating some other service. If it misbehaves, it slashes, you know, a bunch of collateral. That's like, that, that, that is the, the common element. But the, the uncommon element is the, are the security guarantees and the direct attributability of the ETH or security collateral that's being put up for these other services. Um, so specifically the security guarantees, the, um, in the case of native restaking, the protocol that is doing the, the restaking and, uh, you know, the eigenlayer contracts don't actually hold the ETH. Mm. Uh, the, the ETH is living effectively on the beacon chain because it's in the special deposit contract. And so if we get hacked as Etherfy or eigenlayer gets hacked, that ETH is actually not at, at risk meaningfully. Uh, there's, you know, I won't get into the, the weeds of how it might be. For the most part, you can say right. that ETH is not at risk. So there's a, a stronger security guarantee around um, uh, native restaking, which is really valuable because if you have another blockchain that's worth you know ten billion dollars, 
um, and you're using ETH to secure that blockchain, you, you really want to have strong security guarantees. Like that's that's an important thing. You don't want the risk that like some contract on Ethereum gets hacked and suddenly, you know, your, your blockchain doesn't have a security uh, mechanism. Um, so th that's one thing. And then the other thing is what you're missing is attributability because in the case of natively restaked ETH, you can directly say this ETH belongs to this validator, which is running this service um, by this node operator. And th there's a direct chain of uh, relationships such that there's skin in the game. Like, that's yep. the value that you get out of it is the node operator has a direct tie into someone who has skin in the game to make sure that the services are being performed correctly in that same way that Ethereum does. Um, whereas if you just have a large pool of kind of tokens, uh, the challenge there is, you know, as a as a person that deposits into this pool, you're more or less just selecting a random node operator to run a service. That node operator does not have direct skin in the game in making sure that that service is being run very well, which ultimately what that means is you are then relying on the reputational risk that the node operator is taking. And so that becomes actually a centralizing force because you're likely to choose really one of a, a handful of very large node operators uh, because you, you want them to have as much reputational risk as uh, uh, as possible to ensure that they're not putting your your collateral at uh, at risk. So native restaking exactly. is much more complicated because to create a wrapper contract around just a, you know a random token deposit into a large pool is very easy. I mean it's it's like a hundred lines of code and you can ship it. You can get that done in you know in a day. Um, creating a native restaking protocol is much more complex. That's it could be, you know, I think our, our code base is getting close to 10,000 lines of solidity, which in the context of solidity is a lot. I mean, that is, <laughs> yeah. you're spending, you know, $150,000 uh, minimum auditing that every time you, you know, you do a change. So it's, uh, it's, it's quite a, like, it's a, it's a serious code base. It's, it's much more complex, but creates a better product. And so we chose to do the harder thing and create a better product. And I think that is one of the reasons we've um, been able to be successful is because I hopefully that uh, that translate into into a better brand and stronger you know reputation as a result. Yeah, I think from someone from the outside looking in, um, it, it certainly feels that way. Uh, and I think for for a lot of people, you know, I, I, I think even people that have been in the space for a long time and that would consider themselves to be quite technical like <laughs> restaking was a lot to get your head around and i think in particular because you know i think conceptually makes a ton of sense but there are still just a lot of unknowns i think it's important that we call out right eigenlayer hasn't even done its like main net launch and mm -hmm. i think like there's a lot more fun to come when when we go live here and that understanding the risk you know i i think back to again when it was pre-restaking and we just had liquid staking tokens in the form of largely like the Lidos, the Rocket Pools, the Frax and others, right? And you know, even then, the, there was still a lot of unknown risk. And we saw many times like some of these tokens prior to the beacon chain going live mm -hmm. and just relying on, you know, curve pools. The, them getting way out of whack and you know some of the curve pools getting drained and all of a sudden your your liquid staking token is like way off peg with eth and people are panicking right and i think like we're we're not at that level but we're at that kind of stage i would say mm -hmm. right like we're, we're waiting for the go live so um I, I like the way you break it down and i think yeah 
you know, there's less layers to the onion when I look at mm-hmm. um, uh, for for Etherfy. The, the the purest way is going to be obviously natively restaking yourself on Eigenlayer, right? But mm-hmm. I, I would say for a lot of people, that's probably not even the right kind of play here. Um, yeah, you're. Yeah, th- there's a lot of reasons why that is the case. I mean, we think that it's. We think solo staking is very, very important. We've been almost since the day we launched, we've been focused on ensuring solo staking was a big part of our uh, protocol, which is where individuals like in their houses, in their offices, you know, are running these Ethereum nodes rather than like, you know, a million servers running in an Amazon data center in in Virginia. Um, So that is something we prioritize from day one. Um, that's going to be harder with with the uh, restaking, much harder. Because yep. first of all, you might need a bigger machine, right? If you're using some restaking service that you know provides an AI coprocessor thing to Ethereum, um, like you, you know, you need a GPU, maybe multiple GPUs. Like it gets pretty uh, pretty serious. Um, well, th- this is something uh, I think is really interesting, and that I don't actually hear a whole lot of, right? You know, we everyone's so focused on the. Um, classic in crypto, the, the, the monetary aspect, right? You know, mm-hmm. how much yield am I going to be generating? Uh, like, what are the different ways to like farm points, etc. Like, we actually get back mm-hmm. to, and I want I want to dig in a little bit into, you know, what what is the problem that Eigenlayer is solving and digging into like, uh, like ABSs and things like that. But when the, the thing that uh, kind of struck me a little bit here is, you know, for an ETH validator, it's like a, a relatively pretty much standard piece of tech that historically mm-hmm. you've needed to, to run e-validator. You have yeah, intentionally needed... so. Exactly. It was right. designed to be the... that way. Exactly. You don't need these crazy like GPUs like yeah. with like proof of work type stuff. But actually things were going to change quite a lot with with this, uh, depending on how you position yourself to support the varying AVSs, like like you mentioned. Uh, you may be supporting AVSs that are very, yeah, like you say, GPU intensive or mm-hmm. require a huge amount of storage, right? Or mm-hmm. or otherwise. Yeah. And, and I think this is going to create a really interesting dynamic, but maybe we can look at this from, from that view. So what... If, if we just take a quick step back, right, away from the user of Etherfy and maybe go back to, you know, what are we actually solving here? Could you dig mm-hmm. in a little bit into, like, you know, what an AVS, an actively validated service, actually is? And, like, what mm-hmm. is the, what, what is Etherfy actually, I'm sorry, what is Eigenlayer mm-hmm. solving in the first place? Yeah, so, uh, you know, and it's always, uh, you know, it's probably better for folks to go look up the Eigenlayer team talking about this stuff, uh, I probably don't, you know, don't fully do it justice, but um, let, let me start with almost like a, you know, a roundabout way of explaining it. Uh, you know, in Ethereum, you have um, uh, a certain, actually, let me, let me take an even further step back. With Bitcoin, yeah. Bitcoin launched and had Bitcoin script, which is a programming language baked into Bitcoin that allows you to create uh, basically encumbrances upon Bitcoin that you send out. It's very, it's a very limited programming language. It's, it's not Turing complete, uh, you know, as it's, as it's described, um, uh, you know, and, and so that, that makes Bitcoin a very simple, arguably a very robust system. You know, you can send Bitcoin to somebody and then you can receive it. And that's pretty much it. That's doesn't do much, much more than that. Ethereum took this, you know, this idea, uh, which was really hinted at in the in the original Bitcoin white paper, and uh, uh, said, "Okay, well, why don't we extend Bitcoin script and make it a full 
like programming language, which eventually became uh, Solidity. And so it, Bitcoin said, okay, well, we're going to keep track of state. We're going to have a full programming language and execution layer that processes transactions and records, you know, state changes, uh, you know, and, and it, it's a much, much more complex system, but it gave birth to this, uh, you know, so-called infinite garden of applications that, that are on Ethereum. So that's pretty cool, right? Like that's that's a natural <laughs> extension. But one of the decisions that very consciously was made in Ethereum was to have um, a, a limited and very specific set of rules about um, uh, uh, the slashing conditions that relate to running validators on Ethereum. So those slashing conditions are basically like, what are the laws? What are the laws of physics in Ethereum? Um, uh, which is to say like, what can you do and what can you not do? And what are the punishments uh, if you do the wrong thing? So if you go offline, if you double sign uh, a block, et cetera, like what, what are the, the penalties associated with that? Um, and those slashing conditions are fixed. That, that is, it's part of the protocol. It's baked in. You're not supposed to uh, mess with it. Um, and what, what restaking does is say, well, look, what if we could create arbitrary programmable slashing conditions and you could uh, uh, add slashing rules to uh, to ethereum thereby extending or allowing you to extend the ethereum trust layer to other other services so there is an analogy here of going from bitcoin to ethereum as you know ethereum going from uh uh staking to restaking because it, it really is it opens up something that was previously fixed and set in stone and makes it programmable so that's mm -hmm. um there, there's a natural progression here I, I would i even further say that like Restaking is a uh, it is an absolutely inevitable thing that comes out of proof of stake. There's really no yeah. way you can avoid it unless, uh, even if you tried to fight it. Honestly, I, I think it'd be very hard to avoid it. Um, so it is a natural kind of thing. Um, so what? And but then let, let's go back to the question you asked, which is, well, okay, great. You can do this now. You've like now you can rewrite the laws of physics. Um, and that's not quite true, but let, let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, you can <laughs> at least in our world. <laughs> well, you can't, you know, you can't rewrite the Ethereum laws of physics. You can add new laws of physics. That's, I guess, right. maybe that's a better analogy. Um, so great, you you've created this whole programmable system. What can you do with it? Well, there's there's a number of examples. Like, let's say you're trying to create a new blockchain. Um, you're, you know, you you want to launch this blockchain. Um, but it requires you to raise a bunch of capital, maybe have an ecosystem fund, get people to build stuff on the blockchain in advance of you actually launching it to create some value in the system such that when you launch your token, um, there's, uh, you know, it trades at some non-zero value. Um, and uh, that token then becomes the security mechanism for your, uh, your blockchain. Um, and furthermore, then, you know, as the blockchain is getting bootstrapped, you have to just keep incentivizing people to continue staking your token. And so you end up having to spend a lot of your, you know, your, your token um, uh, through inflationary emissions. This is what pretty much every blockchain, almost every blockchain that's launched recently has done. It's Solana's doing it. Uh, every, every blockchain proof stake that's launched does this. They, they bootstrap their network. They raise sometimes hundreds, millions, billions of dollars. And then they have huge amounts of emissions. Like I, I I think Solana is doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year of emissions to incentivize node operators to lock up the Solana tokens, which effectively dilutes, you know, everybody else. Um, so, you know, that's fine, right? That that works. Blockchains are great, and it, it is a 
a viable way to to launch. But the uh, you know what if you could borrow Ethereum security, and you could pay instead of spending you know fifteen percent emissions a year of your token, you could instead spend you know one percent mm. emissions. Pick an arbitrary number. Um, and just borrow the security of Ethereum because Ethereum Ether is super valuable. People are probably willing to lend it to you because really slashing is, is quite rare. Um, slashing um, uh, certainly on Ethereum is it's, it's almost non-existent. Uh, so if you have a similarly well-designed and secure blockchain, you could save a lot of money and not have to raise billions of dollars and spend billions of dollars in emissions every year uh, in order to bootstrap your, your network. You can You can still have your own token that serve the same purposes, but you you can use you can sort of borrow Ethereum security to do that. So, um, you know, and that's one example. There other examples are uh, would be things that just um, uh, whatever services you have that you normally would want to have a, a security budget to ensure those services are are robust. Um, you you can basically directly pay for uh, the Ethereum network security rather than bootstrapping your own network. So, for example, Chainlink is uh, is one example where they have an oracle network and you know they've invested probably at this point probably billions of dollars in yeah. developing this tech and and network um uh and there, obviously there's a lot of value in that but one could imagine a similar type of service being bootstrapped just off of the security of the ether token without having to like create your own set of node operators and uh you know uh, blockchain network and et cetera. Et cetera. so which in um, itself can be is, an enormous distraction, I imagine, when you're already trying yeah, to solve it, a really complex problem, right? Exactly, yeah. And uh, another, the first and most uh, common use case right now um, around uh, restaking is data availability services. Mm. So you have um, uh, IDDA is going to be the first restaking service, which, um, you know, more or less what it does is it reduces the price of block space and makes it uh, a lot cheaper and faster. Uh, so higher throughput uh, to be able to write to the Ethereum blockchain with a high you know, guarantees of of security, uh, specifically used by uh, by rollups. Um, uh, so now you can like spin up you know rollup uh, uh, chains that sort of live on top of Ethereum and borrow Ethereum's uh, security, um, and uh, you know you can do that very cheaply instead of spending millions of dollars a month on gas fees. You could spend maybe hundreds of dollars a month on, on, on gas fees as a roll-up. Yeah. This is great. And so I, and I think what is going to be really exciting, I mean, d- data availability is like flavor of the month at the moment, I think, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it is such an acute issue that, that we're facing on Ethereum, especially as we get into these periods of like m- much increased activity. It just is, is heightened. I think it's like, you can kind of hold me honest here, but somewhere in the region of like 90% of the fees that rollups pay is, is in data available. That's right. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge thing. And it's why we're also seeing other kind of modular um, chains like Celestia also trying to solve these similar problems outside of this um, are getting a ton of hype. But I think that uh, we're going to see a whole, kind of wide range of these AVSs, right? Which uh, are going to be secured via Eigenlayer and I don't know, maybe other competitors to Eigenlayer in in, in the future. I think that's a, a realistic outcome as well, um, which which is going to be really exciting. I guess, um, what are the risks that you 
kind of mm-hmm. have top of mind when we start to really get, let's say, 12 months from now, maybe 18 months from now, what are the things that when you're looking back, maybe in uh, from, from uh, in 18 months' time, what do you think of probably some of the more common or most likely things that could potentially... I don't want to necessarily say go wrong or like what could be the bumps in the road mm-hmm. um, that, that you foresee happening here. Um, and are you specifically asking about the risks associated with restaking or more like the restaking ecosystem? I guess maybe a bit broader. Uh, the, the, I mm-hmm. think the ecosystem, because I think it is, while there are, I, I see your point, right? It's very distinctly different because, you know, um, similar to how we saw the yield farming frenzy there were there was layers that that came to that uh everything mm-hmm. from like the more conservative just you know curve all the way through to you know uh food coins that were like getting farmed in the, in their masses um but maybe mm-hmm. if we just take a look at the ecosystem because i think that's ultimately what probably the the whole this area this this new stage in in kind of the blockchain growth will be judged on i guess what what what's mm-hmm. top of mind for you especially as someone building in the ecosystem um uh yeah i i think um i mean there's so much i i think I, i'm trying to think of like do, how to exactly frame this like all, most of the time when an area gets like way, way ahead of itself and gets like uh, overhyped, you know, and, and I, I would describe restaking certainly as, as a category like that, where it just, there's been a frenzy, a frenzy of uh, uh, speculative activity around it um, uh, before, way before any value, any direct value has been demonstrated. And that's usually bad. Um, and so what we're seeing now is, you know, I think like three or three and a half billion dollars of ETH has been restaked. And I think if you talk to the average person uh, who is doing this stuff um, and ask them like, well, what, there's a lot of things I guess they're expecting around that. But if you said, well, what do you think the yields are going to be on, you know, <laughs> on your asset? I don't think any of them are going to say, well, I think like two or three basis points is what, what I'm really hoping for. <laughs> like, that's probably what it's going to be for a long time. Yeah. Like you're, you're, you know, you're, re- you have $3 billion of assets. There's no products for now. And it'll probably be years before any products like generate any kind of fees or, or revenue. Um, and so people are going to be sitting with, you know, a lot of tokens locked up and uh, it's, it's going to be very difficult to live up to the hype. I mean, the only, uh, source of yield i guess you could you could say is is going to be you know senior age it's going to be emissions like yeah. people are going to just start emitting their tokens at this thing um but, but that that tends to run out pretty fast i mean it, it could literally be months you know before like wow like all these random projects are just uh you know a, a little bit like DeFi summer as, as you say um yeah uh that actually runs out pretty quickly so um i think there is going to be an inevitable absolutely inevitable uh, trough of disillusionment where, uh, you know, the, the, the promise and the, the hype was so high and it's just, it's impossible to live up to it. There's just, it is physically not possible to yeah. live up to this uh, level of hype and it'll probably take years, um, to, uh, like to come out of that trough and eventually start really, uh, you know, delivering on some of that promise. I think, um, yeah, so I think we're, we're, I, I don't even know if we're at the peak yet. Maybe the peak is a few months away. 
but yep. um, uh, you know, th there's there's going to be a peak and then a trough and then a slow, <laughs> gradual return to reality and, and recovery. Um, uh, I think that's. I mean, that is what it is. We're, we're certainly thinking about it and planning around it. Uh, but I think people that are not planning around it and are just thinking, yeah, the, the mania will last forever are, are going to be in a lot of trouble. Like businesses or, or I should say projects that uh, don't have cash flows and revenue stream are, are going to be in trouble um, Yeah. Uh, eventually. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's this like self-fulfilling prophecy that's actually, it, there's there's almost a, an alert a level of irony here where I think this has been an enormous catalyst for bringing a much larger portion of the kind of circulating ETH to be staked as a result. And as we see more and more of that ETH being staked, you know, the overall validator rewards will be distributed across a, a, a much broader spectrum of validators. And we're kind of seeing this in ETH validator rewards gradually kind of going down over time and it kind of feels like you know until we get like you say a bunch of these like protocols running up and like these avs spin up that generate a ton of fees that are then going to bring back some of uh the the kind of staking kind of uh yields for, for certainly on on eth it's it is going to take quite a while i think people are going to be looking back to what was it mm -hmm. uh 2022 where we you know we were in and around the six five to six percent range for just natively staking ETH, you know, those days are long gone. And I think restaking mm -hmm. is the only way that we get back to those levels. Um, so yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be super excited. Well, I think I'm, it, it's, mm -hmm. I know that you have a lot planned. I want to be really conscious of your time, Mike. Um, I think this has been really amazing to, to dig into. And I think everyone in the, in the space is excited in particular about what, what you're all building. Um, where's, where's the best place that people can learn a little bit more about EtherFi and, and, and what you're all doing around restaking? Uh, yeah, so our name is our URL. So go to ether.fi uh, and uh, you can learn a lot more uh, there. Um, it's, uh, you know, from a use case standpoint, it's a very easy product to, uh, to use. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, th there's, there's a lot more you could do with uh, EtherFi. Uh, out there. Excellent. Well, Mike, we'd love to have you back in a few months because I know uh, it, as we get in and out of kind of the initial frenzy, I'm sure there's there's a lot more plans that you'll be able to kind of share publicly. Mm -hmm. um, it seems like of all the 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 kind of the, the the teams building in the space, there needs to, there's like an announcement almost daily, especially on the DeFi side mm -hmm. of things, which have been really really cool to to see already. So. Yeah, certainly from my side, we'll, we'll be rooting for you. And uh, yeah, thanks again for your time. Sounds great. Yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. Contents of the Decrypting Crypto podcast should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.